suppose we'll hear stories about addiction. We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too. Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And this is season three of LTGW. And with me is Mariana Casagranda. She is my co-host this season. And season three is dedicated entirely to artists who are in recovery from substances. So Mariana is an artist herself and welcome. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Nancy. I, uh, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, hello to everyone who is joining us. Uh, I am absolutely delighted to be part of this series as an artist in recovery and co-host. And um, let's start, shall we? Yes, we shall. Yes. And we're really responding today to the last interview with Eric Howell, who is a dear friend of mine and a, I called him a pop artist. And he's also a singer and songwriter and just a wonderful human being who definitely teetered on the edge of life and death through the abuse of alcohol. And so Mariana has listened to his interview and had some salient points that she wanted to get back to. And again, this season, I'd love it if there's a conversation on Facebook that, you know, asks us to respond to different aspects of what we share in common as artists and as artists who are also in recovery. So where do you think we ought to start, Mariana? Oh, I just really loved this whole um, nebulousness around the consumption of quantities and the lack of reality thereof. Yes, it really cracked me up that Eric did not think of himself as a problem drinker, even though he knew that he was drinking more than the average person. And when I asked him about how many drinks would you consume on average, he said 30. And I know he's not referring to 30 beers. You know, I've heard mm -hmm. stories of people that would consume 30 or more beers in a day, but he's talking about 30 drinks, probably of vodka daily mm -hmm. yeah. and not thinking that you have a problem. Right. Well, it negates vodka's impact if you mix it with juice. You probably didn't know that, but you know, it does. Um <laughs> One of the many stories uh, I have heard, I wasn't so much a fan of vodka particularly, but I do relate to the nebulousness and the dis and really conscious and I'm sure subconscious desire to not notice how much I was drinking um, because that was crucial to keeping the fable limping along. You know, uh, my body took the toll, but I was someone who could drink a number of beers and then switch to hard liquor and go back and forth. And, you know, I could do the back and forth pretty easily. And I did. And I didn't keep track of the drinks. I mean, the only way I kept track was if I had any money left at the end of the night, you know, that would probably have told me more in terms of quantities. But she, drinks were fairly cheap back in my day. 
the dinosaurs were still roaming, you know, when, when I was going to college. So they were relatively cheap. And there were plenty of bars to go to that serve pictures of beer for a couple of bucks. And so we could all share, right? But without a doubt, I related to him because my share was going to be twice as much as most people share without a doubt. Um, and, and I also yes. remember surrounding myself with people who could drink more than I did because it go. would make me look like I wasn't the person mm -hmm. who was drinking the very most. Correct. And yet I could drink a number of people, especially men under the table. And I was proud of it. Yes. And yes. talk about running out of money. I mean, I really was, you know, when we think about liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't sell my body for money. However, I had lots of sex for uh, with people who bought me drinks. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. And it's not exactly like I was doing it for the drinks. I mean, it's not exactly like I wasn't back then. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Well, it would be it would be, you know, considering that our minds are, you know, saturated with the impact of alcohol, how much rational thinking were we capable of? probably next to none. So all the senses are distorted. Uh, you know, the hungry, the thirsty, the sexual stuff, all that stuff is activated. And it's all crazy and confused. And oh, yeah, we're making very clear decisions, nonetheless. Um, you know, but so that, you know, the, uh, the amount consumed, which is an enormous amount when you think about it on a daily basis average, you know, that's a lot of booze and the toll that it takes on the body, you know, the impact of that. And then, you know, just listening carefully that the other piece was he really believed he didn't have any physical dependency on alcohol, that, you know, his, his drinking was really just a heavy drinker. And that was far and away, like miles away from being an alcoholic. Interesting. Well, and what you said too, Mariana, is there's a break from reality. Yeah. It's not only a lack of rational thinking, it isn't in touch with reality. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. where Eric might have said there was no physical toll and he didn't go through withdrawal, he did become very depressed as a human being. And alcohol as a drug is, as you know, a depressant. Right, right. So a lot of people turn to alcohol to feel, to get drunk, to get high, to, you know, to feel less depressed. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then it's building on that depression in the brain. Correct. So right. you know, Eric described being soulless. Mm -hmm. And I know, I don't even think it was uh, talked about very much in the interview. I I know that he struggled in early sobriety with questioning if he could get that sense of joy back mm -hmm. in his life. And, mm -hmm. you know, it started with actually not only getting married after getting sober, he also returned to cycling mm -hmm. that I believe helped a lot with the endorphins. And now as a pretty new dad with a recently turned two-year-old daughter, there's just so much joy and you can see it in his face and in everything that Eric is creating. And yeah. And I think, you know, the, the, that nebulousness, which leads to the, you know, ultimately to the drinking and then the depression um, ties in with, you know, I think the conflicting desires that I recall when I was drinking about uh, not wanting to feel much of anything and relating anything um, 
to the drinking as pleasurable, even when I felt sick or a little bit, you know, off my center or a lot off my center, it, it still felt better, quote unquote, than what I perceived reality to be. And I had no effing clue, pardon that, but it's true, what actual joy was or happiness, because most of those things were diluted around partying. And on its on my own, I don't know if I would have recognized those things as, as independent feelings. I really don't. I'm not certain that that was that clear for me. Um, and I know a lot of addicts want to numb the pain. And I believe far fewer realize that they're also numbing the ability to feel joy, because you're numbing feelings, period. And they all coexist. You know, in sobriety, there's lots of joy and there's still pain. Right. Because it's life. Yeah. And And Eric, he wrote a song that he shared with me. I hope to have it up on Facebook and promoting liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. He wrote a soul he wrote a song named Numbing the Soul, uh, which refers to his using mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that he was just trying to numb the pain and in the process, numb the soul. Yeah, except you can't numb the soul. That's the that's the bummer. <laughs> uh, I pretty much know that as a fact. You really can't. You can't be in charge of the soul. It's the other way around, whether you like it or not. Um but there was something else that got triggered with, with what you were saying. Oh, the, he, he talked about the psychic toll. And, and that's what I think you're weaving into is, and I thought that was, those two words were really powerful and very evocative for me, um, particularly because on a, such a deep spiritual initiation level, you know, um, his marriage was an initiation into stepping into a potential maturity point, if you will. And sobriety certainly is a kick you in the butt, you know, jumpstart into that. And that his spouse really made him go in more than, you know, she underlined it, let's put it that way, in a great way. And for one, and he acknowledged how grateful he was for that, that, you know, he got himself there thanks to her doing a lot of the work and research for it. And he was very fortunate in his landing there and then taking the program on little by little and becoming, you know, much more strong in who he was. And I think the the psychic toll is the lack of meaning and value and purpose in one's life, despite the activity of the art. All of that isn't really the real stuff until you get clear and clean and sober. And then the door opens to the, the real voice that has always yearned to come out. Um, and that has been suppressed and repressed, you know, and that is, I think, part of his journey as much as it is ours. Now, there was something earlier we were talking about, Mariana, mm. about the, and I wondered if it was connected to the psychic toll. It's about the origins of art being mm. in a troubled soul or mm-hmm. in trauma. And a lot of artists question, would art exist if it were not for those painful experiences? And I actually believe it would. Mm -hmm. I believe there is an art that comes from a divine source that is pure in its absence of pain and very much reflective of life 
it usually contains both. Mm -hmm. When I think about the earliest evidence of art, which is cave drawings, right? Mm -hmm. And that there's been recent discovery that particularly with many of those sites, it was women who were doing the drawings and that the hands were small, not because the people were small, but because the the makers were women navigating a, a shamanic initiation into hunting, which they were responsible for, by the way, in terms of getting the warriors prepared, the right mental state, the right spiritual state for receptivity and to be in one with the animal they were looking for, and then praying for that animal and also recognizing the soul in the animal. And that, I think, was part of what was behind these incredible, I hope one day to see in live person, these drawings. And I think about the story that was being told on the wall was important enough to put it on the wall, to use, you know, fat and charcoal and whatever they found for color. And it was compelling to them to leave a mark, to be, to, to leave a mark of their existence. And so... When I think about the power of art as a universal language and the fact that as an artist, my body and my hands are part of that receivership, that insight and inspiration that comes through me, flavored by me, and only I'm going to create what's coming out of my body because it's my experiences, not yours, right? And so on that level, not only is it my experiences, but it's my pain and my sadness that creates a fullness for me in addition to the joy that I find in my work. All of that contributes. I don't go out of my way to seek pain these days, but I think in my drinking, I did consciously mm -hmm. and unconsciously, probably because it had a high drama quota. And that was what I was supposed to, quote unquote, be doing as an artist, be dramatic. Okay, I'm Italian. It probably came with the territory. I don't know where the two mingle, frankly, but that's my beef. That's my sort of perception of that. Um, so back to you. <laughs> well, you know what you're, also reminding me of a time when I was studying oil painting with an artist, mm. Michael Waterman. Mm. And I was very frustrated at the time. I couldn't get the media to cooperate exactly. And what I created on the canvas wasn't in my estimation as good as what I was seeing in my mind's eye. And I said something about that to Michael about you know, my work just isn't as good as what I can create in my mind. And he said, no, it's better. Hmm. And I was like, what? And then we got to where we both believe that the, the ideas come from a greater cosmic consciousness, that they're angels, if you want to call them that, um, mm -hmm. There's a divine source that communicates with you through ideas that become art and that I might receive these visions, but I'm the one with hands to produce them. Mm -hmm. The angels have an energy, you know, that they're sending in my direction. And I'm the one that's a conduit for those mm -hmm. energies to actually exist in material form. And therefore, my art is better than what I can imagine, because mm -hmm. I can only imagine so far. True. And I really love that. And I really love that I now believe it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that I more and more create what 
my brother refers to them as slices and he's a writer. So he gets what he calls slices that are kind of um, intuitions or ideas that come to him from another source. And sometimes he wakes up from dreams with these ideas or these slices mm-hmm. that, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a slice of heaven. Mm-hmm. Um And I very much feel like I am a conduit, a receiver of art and that art has its own voice and I have my own artistic voice. And there was a, a, um, I think it was a TED talk. It was a TED talk by Elizabeth Gilbert, who talked about the creative genius being from the word genie, like a, a divine entity in your body that is visiting, you know, that it's a genie visiting that creates this genius. And she talked about um, in her book, Big Magic, she talked about create, she started to write a novel and it had all this um, idea, this premise, and she gave up on it. And years later, she had a connection and connection with an old friend, reconnected with an old friend. And the friend had recently published a very well-selling novel that was based on exactly the same premise. And it was just a little too far-fetched to be like a cool idea that many people would have. It And what Elizabeth said is the genies, you didn't take it upon yourself to be the conduit. They find somebody else that has the energy, the time and the wherewithal to do it. Yeah. That's right. Bring that message forth. So I feel like we are, as artists, channels of the divine. Mm -hmm. And that's part of finding our creative voice is finding the way to transform it or translate it. Mm -hmm. I I once heard someone describe uh, labor and childbirth that way as a shamanic initiation, that the woman is one foot in the material world, one foot in the spirit world, and her body's the conduit for the soul that's coming through her. And that her purpose is to receive it, go through all the contractions, all the situational experiences, and then finally get it, you know, get it into the material world outside of her body. Um, And what a, you know, what a magical and transformative thing that is. And that feels very much, very similar to me in terms of the birthing of of an idea. And you're right. I think when the genie comes, there's got to be a contract of sorts that basically says to me, okay, Mariana, are you willing to have some blood, sweat, and tears here? Because it ain't going to come easy necessarily. It's not like putting bread in a toaster and waiting two minutes for it to pop up all done. Okay. So for those of you who had that idea, ixnay on that. But, you know, are you willing to to labor for however long it takes to give birth to peace, whatever, you know? And I'm not always raising my hands going, oh, goody. Yeah, that sounds great. I get too many of them at times. I get downloads and, uh, you know, a lot of things get dumped. And then I'm just overwhelmed and I have to pick something that I can reasonably approach. And then I scribble ideas down for later. Um, I've learned the wisdom of that, too. Uh, they won't go away necessarily if I can anchor them on the page. Um, that doesn't mean someone else doesn't do them, but they're not going to do them my way. So there. <laughs> I love that Barbara Sher said to me one time, keep a record of your ideas. Mm. And I said, why? So many of them don't come to fruition. And she asked me, and it was in a public auditorium with 
hundreds of people, she asked me, do you ever bring flowers inside, cut flowers inside? And it was during the summertime. And I had a um, habit of every week bringing flowers inside these great um, gladiolas. And um, I said, yeah, I do all the time. And she said, why? And I said, because they're beautiful. And she said, yeah, but they're just going to die. And I said, but they're beautiful while they're alive. And she said, so are your ideas. <laughs> oh, nice. It was. It was really nice. And my sister just complimented me recently. I finished the design, the front and the back of my seventh in a series of seven quilts in a project. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she said, I've rarely seen you take a project of this magnitude from beginning to end. And complete it. So it is very exciting to, you know, mm -hmm. find myself with that tenacity. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of half finished, partially done projects in our lives. Yes. The clutter of being an artist. It's productive, but it is, you know, it is half finished. Yeah. I hear you. Well, that reminds Wonderful. me of one other really quick. Um, mm -hmm. it, I was recently at an exhibit of Lissa Hunter's. Mm. And I had come in in the midweek at Cove Street Arts, and I was looking very, you know, in depth at a certain piece. And she came up behind me to say something as the artist. And when I turned around, she recognized me. We'd been in a children's book illustrators group for years together. And it was a decade earlier that we last saw each other. And we had an hour long conversation in the gallery. Bless you. Oh. And, yeah, um, and one of the things we talked about was on one of her pieces, she had made, she works with found objects and with um, a type of linen, wrapped linen, so that she's making objects. It's really sculpting with wax linen mm -hmm. linen. Mm. and um, And so one of the pieces in that show looks like a windowsill and it's got found objects as well as her made found objects out of linen and other like mm. um, porcelain. And, and one of the objects there was a, a crushed bottle cap that had rusted. And I was like, you know, only artists really relate to that we all have this collection <laughs> of what other people might think of as garbage or, you know, and my son one time said, oh, no, mom, he'd seen across the street from where we live a collection of those um, glass blocks that people make shower walls out yes, of. Yes, yes, those are great. That were just yeah. left on the side of the road. And I collected Ooh. them and brought uh -huh. them home. Uh -huh, and he was course. like, I knew you would. I knew those would show up at our house, <laughs> you know? Along oh, with so, all the clamshells uh, and the uh -huh. starfish, dried starfish, uh -huh. and the, you uh -huh. know, uh -huh. it's endless. It's endless. This this was the this was the definitive factor, Nancy, in my not getting a tiny house because I realized I need three of them. One for all the stuff I pick up, like a crow, you know, that I can't let go of because there are important. I mean, as I speak to you now, I have a table covered with rocks, shells, and uh, other assembled uh, objects that I find everywhere. 
and they're all over the place, you know. And while I haven't done bottle caps, uh, I do have, you know, stamp collections and foreign stamps and all kinds of, you know. And absolutely, you're right. Uh, when other people come and look at what I have in my studio around me, they get perplexed. They're like, why, why do you have trees in your space? Because <laughs> they're fabulous and I'm going to paint them. Oh, you know, like, what do you mean you're going to paint them? You know, I mean, and it's so it's, you know, when I go to other people's studios, I have that sense of like, wow, look, me too. You know, I collect that too. And the beauty that we see in the ordinary is extraordinary. That's such a gift for us. So, you know, I have pieces of bark hanging around. You know, I mean, I got all this stuff. Um, so I get those glass box. I collected those back in the day, too. I thought they were fabulous. Um, <laughs> we should have an artist swap where we just swap some of the stuff we're tired of. You know, that would be great. That would be great. And you also sparked something that uh, during the pandemic, I was facetiming with a friend of mine out in los angeles mm -hmm. and she brought me through her home just doing a virtual gallery of art that she's collected and mm -hmm. i did the same through my home and i collect mostly main artists are mm -hmm. you know grace my walls and it was really fun and i thought oh that's a good idea you know mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. um, to have a gallery show of our own home collection mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah. you're talking about something more like a clothing swap, but just bring your art stuff. Just your art stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I did my will and testament, you know, I told my executors, I said, I'm more worried about who gets my rocks and stuff than I am anything else. And and they both knew me, so they didn't laugh. <laughs> Anyone else would have probably been like, are you OK? Did you have a mental, you know, you should probably go see a doctor at some point. <laughs> you know, like, well, and I had a friend over the other day who's an artist and she saw these yeah. wrapped rocks that I did uh -huh. with caning on my windowsill and said, oh, I love these. And I said, can I give you the caning that I'm never going to use again? And she was like, oh, yes, I'll look up yeah. how to do it. And yeah, yeah. so that was awesome. great because I end up collecting mm -hmm. when I do a one off project um, mm -hmm. and then I have all the materials to do that again and I don't get back to it. So, yeah. Anyway, let's um, conclude. What else do we want to say about Eric? I, I guess I would like to come back to this image of that I saw on Facebook of his daughter playing a little pink piano with a pink microphone at two years old, that he's priming the pump already. It's just so cute. And mm -hmm. I'm so pleased that this man is recovering and invested in his recovery because I don't believe he would ever have become a parent without finding himself first. Yeah, I I think that what what um, one I'm just so happy for him that he gets the joy of fatherhood and being a partner in a marriage. You know, those are both very big roles each and each by themselves, and that. He has opted to jump into life 150% as opposed to not being in it, which would have been the drinking times, you know, not really being fully present. And also that he uh, said yes to all of the transformation that was a possibility for him, that he said yes instead of uh, no. Uh, I think that's huge. 
And the vulnerability of being a parent, the responsibility that it takes, um, the access to emotions, all the gifts that recovery brings with it and more have allowed him to become a fully realized human being in the process of you know, learning more about being a human being and an artist and a musician, you know, and a father and all the roles, you know, we don't, um, I know for me, I didn't even begin to conceive that those things could be possible for me, you know, so. I just deal. realized one of the things that we didn't really touch very much on, I believe Eric was saying that art continues to wait, to be a way to purge the dark side of his soul. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I don't really feel like dwelling into that at this moment. And I want to recognize it as his truth. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it will always continue to be that for him. Mm -hmm. I certainly do recognize, and those of you that go and look at Eric's work, you can see that they're kind of like cap capitalizing the the dark entity you know some of them look like they're almost ghosts coming out of these mm -hmm. specks mm -hmm. of um a pen and or ink or you know whatever mm -hmm. the medium mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. all of a sudden you'll see a face emerging so mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I hope you come back to Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. Please subscribe. The more subscribers we have, the more attention this podcast will get, the more people it will reach, and hopefully help people find the value in a life in recovery. So for now, it's been great. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Your lives will become ever more fabulous. Keep listening. <laughs> I think we have some wonderful discussions. And um, if you have any interest, uh, please feel free to visit my uh, website at marianacasagranda.com. More than happy to take inquiries. And uh, thank you again, Nancy, for having me on. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. 